Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on episode 83 of the Fan of History podcast, 4900 BC. This episode is written by Shane Soresby and it's read by me, Dan Horning, the Fan of History. This is the final episode of our prehistory series that started in 200,000 BC. I do have one more script from Shane and if Shane wants to write any more scripts I will of course publish them. But the next script is for the 690s BC so you will get another decade of our story. But for me to be able to continue uh, the story after that I would need some patronage on patrons if you like what you're hearing go to patreon.com search for fano history and give us a dollar or two per episode that would be highly appreciated but now we go to 4900 bc last time we focused solely on the year 5000 bc and now we begin our episode 100 years later in germany to look at something that would become a regular occurrence, particularly during the 4th millennium BC. The Gossek Circle was a Neolithic structure located near the town of Gossek in Saxony-Anhalt in Germany. It is considered to be the oldest and best known of the circular enclosures associated with the Central European Neolithic and also may be one of the oldest solar observatories in the world. It was first discovered by an aerial survey in 1991 that showed circular ridges under a wheat field. 
Due to drought conditions, the crop marks were easy to see from the air. In 2002, François Bertheim and Peter Biel of the University of Halle-Wittenberg began a major excavation of the site. When they combined the evidence with GPS observations, they noticed that two sudden openings marked the sunrise at summer solstice and sunset at winter solstice. Wolfhart Schlosser of Ruhr University in Bochum believed that this enabled early Europeans to determine with accuracy the course of the sun as it moved across the heavens. He was convinced that the enclosure was constructed for observation of the movements of the sun, moon and stars, as well to keep track of time. This was important for when sowing and harvesting of crops could occur in Neolithic times. In 2004, a student group from the University of California, Berkeley, joined the dig to provide a more international scope on site. Radiocarbon dating places the construction of the site to approximately 4900 BC. Compared to approximately 200 similar prehistoric mound sites located throughout Europe, the Gossack site has striking deviations. For a start, instead of the usual three gates, it had four gates that led into a circular compound. The compound consisted of an unusual formation of concentric rings of wooden palisades. These wooden palisades have been reconstructed by ecologists and state officials by using hand tools to make it look more authentic. Rings and gates into the inner circle became narrower as one progressed to the center that indicated only few people could enter the innermost ring. Schlosser explained that Gossack wasn't just used as calendar construction, but was also used as a sacred building. Archaeologists have found remains of what may have been ritual fires, animal and human bones, and a headless skeleton near the southeastern gate, which could be interpreted either as a human sacrifice or just a burial ritual. Dating of pottery shards suggested that the enclosure corresponded to a transitional phase between the linear pottery and stroke ornamented ware cultures. The stroke ornamented ware culture was the successor to the linear pottery culture in Central Europe from approximately 4700 to 4400 BC. Centered on Silesia in Poland, Eastern Germany and Northern Czech Republic, it overlapped with the Lengiel to the south and with the Rusen to the west. The pottery, which was found at Gossek, abandoned incision of the musical note pottery developed in linear pottery stage in favor of bands of small punctures in zigzag patterns with a vertical band dividing each angle. The result was a band of continuing A-frames. This style of pottery spread down the Vistula and Elbe rivers as a result of the transmission of cultural objects. Like the Lengjell culture, people lived in trapezoidal houses with one end being made shorter than the other to achieve that shape. The reason for this is obscure, but we noted with the Lengjell that climate change may have played a role in this decision. As for dealing with the deceased, the stroke ornamented culture tended to prefer cremation to burial. No one knows 
why the Gothic circle was abandoned, as no evidence of fire or destruction has been found. What is known is that later settlers built a defensive moat that followed the ditches of the old enclosure. The reconstructed enclosure was opened to the public on the 21st of December 2005, which of course was the date of the winter solstice. This would not be the last time we will uncover something connected to the summer and winter solstices, because we have only just begun doing that, and we would do it a lot more if we actually continued after this episode. But now we're going to talk about the Kukteni Tripilian culture, 4800 to 3000 BC. The Kukteni Tripilian culture was a Neolithic to Copper Age culture that was located in Eastern Europe between 4800 and 3000 BC. It flourished in Moldova, northeastern Romania, and parts of western, central and southern Ukraine. It extended northeast from the Danube through the Iron Gates to the Black Sea and the Dnieper River. As of 2003, 3,000 cultural sites ranging from small villages to large settlements with hundreds of dwellings have been identified. In 1884, Theodor T. Burada investigated a quarry at the village of Kukuteni in Iasi County in Romania, where gravel was being mined to maintain the road from Targofrumus to Iasi. What he found were fragments of pottery and terracotta figurines. Followed an excavation in spring of 1885, and then he and his fellow archaeologists published their findings in 1885 and 1889, and they were presented at two international conferences in Paris in 1889. Following this, the first Ukrainian site was discovered by Czech amateur archaeologist Vincent Schwojka, at the village of Tripilia in Kiev Oblast, Ukraine, in either 1893, 1896 or 1897. But he presented his findings at the 11th Congress of Archaeologists, and that was in 1897. This was considered the official date of the Tripilian culture in Ukraine. Today, both finds from Romania and Ukraine are merged together to form one continuous culture known as Kukuteni Tripilian. The roots of this culture can be found with the Starchevo and the Vincha cultures of the 6th to the 5th millennium BC. During the early period, which is 4800 to 4000 BC, it was influenced by the linear pottery culture from the north and the Boyan culture to the south. Over the course of the 5th millennium BC, the culture expanded from the Prutsiret River regions along the eastern foothills of the Carpathian Mountains into the plains of the Dnieper and the southern Bug Rivers of central Ukraine. Over the course of the next 1,800 years, the culture shared common features with other Neolithic societies, including an almost non-existent social stratification, a lack of a political elite, and a rudimentary economy of pastoralists and subsistence farmers. As a society of subsistence farmers, the main occupation for most peoples would have been cultivating the soil using an ard or scratch plough, harvesting crops and tending livestock. The vast majority of their diet consisted of cereal grains, wheat, 
oats, rye, prosa millet, barley and hemp were cultivated. Some of these cereal grains were ground and baked to produce unleavened bread in clay ovens or on heated stones. Peas, beans, apricots, cherry plums and wine grapes were also grown, although there is zero evidence that any wine was produced. Domesticated livestock consisted primarily of cattle, but did include small numbers of pigs, sheep and goats. Surviving artistic depictions of animals show evidence that the ox was employed as a draft animal. Remains and artistic depictions of horses have been discovered. But whether these were wild or domesticated horses remains to be seen. One hypothesis is that horse domestication occurred on the steppes adjacent to the culture between 4000 and 3500 BC. So it is possible that this culture was actually familiar with the domestic horse, but evidence for this remains inconclusive. Hunting supplemented their agricultural diet. Traps, bow and arrows, spears and clubs were used to hunt red deer, roe deer, aurochs, wild boar, fox and brown bear. At Poyana Slatine in Romania, the earliest known salt works in the world has been discovered. It was first used by the Starcevo in approximately 6000 BC. Evidence indicates that the Cucutene Tripillion extracted salt from spring water through the process known as Bricketage. Brackish water was boiled in large pottery vessels to produce a dense brine. Brine was heated in ceramic Bricketage vessel until all moisture was evaporated. The remaining crystallized salt adhered to the inside walls of the vessel. The vessel was broken open and the salt was scraped from the shards. Provision of salt was a major logistical problem for the largest settlements. Relying on cereal foods for the diet, Neolithic cultures had to incorporate supplementary sources of salt into the diet. Trouble is, it had to be moved in bulk from distant sources on the western Black Sea coast and Carpathian Mountains by river, and some large settlements required between 36,000 and 100,000 kilograms of salt every year. And you thought our diet was bad today, with constant reminders that sugar, sugar and salt are bad for you, but these people really, really lacked salt. Most early settlements consisted of pit houses, accompanied by increasing incidences of above-ground clay housing. By the middle period, which is defined as 4000 to 3500 BC, dwellings were built with vertical pools in the form of circles or ovals. Log floors covered in clay were incorporated into the building. Wattle and daub walls were woven from pliable branches and covered in clay. A clay oven was situated in the center of the dwelling. The majority of settlements consisted of high density, small settlements spaced 3 to 4 kilometers apart, concentrated in the Siret, Prut and Dniester river valleys. In the middle period, people built the largest settlements in Neolithic Europe. Some with as many as 3,000 structures and a population of between 20,000 and 46,000 inhabitants. This is larger than the city-states of Sumer that are approximately 500 years 
later than this. It is also roughly equal to the population of London in 1340. One notable feature of this culture was the periodical act of destruction and recreation of settlements. And that seems to have happened every 60 to 80 years. The purpose of this is a subject of debate. Some scholars have theorized that people believed that every house was an organic living entity, sharing the same circle of life, death and rebirth as human beings. At Podori in Romania, the site revealed 13 habitation levels constructed on top of each other over many years. Pottery was produced by placing long coils of clay in circles to form the base and walls of the vessel. Once the shape and height was built up, the sides were smoothed to create a seamless surface. Vessels were elaborately decorated with swirling patterns and intricate designs. Decorative incisions were sometimes added before firing and were sometimes filled with colored dye to produce a dimensional effect. At first, colors used to decorate pottery were limited to rusty red and white. Later on, additional colors were added with experimentation of advanced ceramic techniques. Pigments were based on iron oxide for red use, calcium carbonate, iron magnetite and manganese jacobite ores for black and calcium silicate for white. Between 3500 and 3000 BC, kilns were constructed with separate combustion and filling chambers that were separated by a grate. Temperatures were maintained at 900 degrees centigrade to achieve a uniform and complete firing of vessels. It was only when copper became available that advances in ceramic technology began to wane. Some communities contained a special building located in the center of the settlements. Artifacts were intentionally buried in the ground that has provided insight into some of the beliefs, rituals and structure of members of this society. Many of these artifacts were clay figurines or statues that were believed to have powers that could help protect people who looked after them. Different figurines were used for different purposes and were not all representative of a goddess. Our old friend Maria Gimbutas based her Kurgan hypothesis and old European culture theory on these clay figurines. As she suggested that Neolithic societies were matriarchal, non-warlike and worshipped the mother goddess before being wiped out by the Indo-European tribes from the steppes in approximately 2500 BC. This theory is discredited as evidence suggests that the Cucutene Tropillion was a much more complex society than she had accounted for. There is debate among scholars as to how the culture came to an end. Disregarding the invasion theory, it is believed that climate change played a part in the downfall of the Cucutene Tropillion. In approximately 3200 BC, the climate became colder and drier than it had ever been since the end of the last ice age. And that resulted in the worst drought in the history of Europe since the beginning of agriculture. As the culture had relied so heavily on farming, it would have collapsed in a similar way to do so endured the disastrous dust bowl conditions of the 1930s in Midwest USA. 
One problem with this theory is that during the warm Atlantic period, Denmark was occupied by Mesolithic cultures rather than Neolithic. The first period of climate transformation ended 500 years before the end of the Cucutene Tripillion and the second approximately. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Approximately 1,400 years later. Let's go to Greece. We're going to talk about late Neolithic Greece, 4800-4500 BC, known as the Dimini culture after the archaeological remains found at Dimini, Volos, Greece. The late Neolithic Greek period was characterized by settlement expansion and intensification of the farming economy. Densely built settlements contained large rectangular and megaroid buildings made from stone. They were surrounded by ditches 4 to 6 meters wide, 1.5 to 3.5 meters deep, or stone enclosures 1.5 to 1.7 meters high. These were used to either defend against wild animals or to demarcate limits of the settlement in order to protect their stuff. In addition to the mixed farming and stock rearing economy, specialized pottery production, manufactured jewelry from seashells and leaf-shaped arrowheads produced from Melian obsidian in the southern Aegean were carried out. Distribution of arrowheads, jewelry and ring idol pendants to the Balkans and Central Europe indicated the development of an extensive exchange network and intensification in navigation. This enabled the Dimini to obtain silver and copper for jewelry making. These products were owned by a minority as objects of social prestige. The deceased were buried in simple pits in the contracted or the flexed position. Burials of children in jars were carried out, whilst cremation and collection of bones continued. Pottery was continued from the previous Neolithic phases of Greece. Black pottery in a whitish background and incised pottery of classical Dimini was the culmination of the art of Neolithic pottery. 
The spiral and checkerboard pattern predominated, while incised pottery used decorative motifs from weaving and basketry. The human figure was rendered schematic, as was manifested from the plank-shaped and cruciform figures. But now it's time to return to the center of the action, the place where it all happens. We go back to southern Mesopotamia and we catch up with the Ubaid people who we talked about a few episodes ago. Previously we mentioned that people arrived in southern Mesopotamia, possibly from the Samara culture in approximately 6500 BC. In this area, cereal agriculture was only possible with the aid of canal irrigation from the Tigris and the Euphrates. The earliest known Ubaid site, Tel Queli, attested to a well-developed farming system that relied on oxen as trot animals for cultivation of irrigated salt-tolerant crops such as barley. Later on, in 5400 BC, the first settlement of Eridu emerged that became a regional center for the temple of the Sumerian god Enki. In the meantime, northern Mesopotamia and Syria were still in the late Halaf period. However, things were about to change. Analysis of ceramics and pottery from excavations at Tel Tavila in northeastern Syria indicated that during the late Halaf period a shift of the settlement system in the northern regions took place. The current subsistence strategy was abandoned in favor of hamlets and villages with a clear focus on agriculture and animal husbandry for several centuries. Modifications from Halaf to northern Ubaid during the late 6th and the early 5th millennium BC can be seen through its architecture and settlement systems. One development was the introduction of the tripartite house with central hall that was seen as an indication that a new form of family organization consisting of extended families had arrived from southern Mesopotamia. In the background of changing living and subsistence strategies, it may be assumed that this change was an attempt to have everything under the roof of one big rectangular building. Architecture and associated artifact distributions suggest economic differentiation between wealthier and poorer households with the emergence of specific individuals in what looks like, no doubt, positions of leadership. At Tel Abada in central Mesopotamia, a building known as Building A was in the center of the settlement. This was three times the size of the smallest houses. Building A showed evidence for unique burial practices, high concentration of stone artifacts such as mace heads, carved gypsum vessels and stone palettes, as well as administrative tab- tablets such as uh, tokens and clay prototablets. The differentiation between building A and the rest of the settlement reflects that this economic system may have been inherited for several generations. Another development was the introduction of rectangular temples with corners oriented to cardinal points of the compass. These temples contained altars offering tables, niches, buttresses and a tripartite long room ground plan. Although they first appeared in Ubaid 1, particularly in Eridu, 
temples would grow larger and more elaborate, appearing at sites such as Varka and Tel Ukair. This reflects the growing influence of a priest caste during the 6th and the 5th millennium BC. The noticeable thing about the whole Ubaid period is the stability of the system over a period of approximately 1,500 years longer than the Roman Empire. There are only minor changes in settlement, subsistence and material culture. In contrast with later periods, we have no evidence, zero evidence for any warfare. Ubaid seals show no depictions of weapons, prisoners or combat scenes. There are no signs of fortifications or violent destruction. Mortuary data from hundreds of Ubaid burials shows no signs of chiefly burials or division in elite to commoner. There is a lack of evidence for exotic, rare or high status trade goods. Copper is non-existent in Ubaid sites and only appear in the succeeding Uruk period. Lapis lazuli and gold are not found in Mesopotamia until 1000 years later. So 1500 years of what looks very much like peace in this area. Ubaid sites in southern Mesopotamia tend to be so deeply buried that only limited exposure has been possible. After more than 60 years of excavation at centers, villages and cemeteries, no exotic luxuries have been found at Ubaid sites. Only at the end of the 5th millennium BC does this pattern show any signs of change when the Uruk period arrives, and with that a lot of problems. Although there was no evidence of luxury items, it does not mean the trade did not happen. On the contrary, evidence for interaction between southern Mesopotamia and the Persian Gulf emerged with identification of 6th to 5th millennium BC pottery at scores of site in, sites in eastern Saudi Arabia, Bahrain and Qatar. How did they get there? Recent research showed that advanced boat building and sailing technologies were being developed during the Ubaid period. A maritime exchange existed between Ubaid communities of southern Mesopotamia and the Arabian Neolithic groups of eastern Arabia. Ceramics were an item of trade that was incorporated into the Arabian culture. Evidence can be found at the site of H3 as Sabia in Kuwait. Previously situated at the edge of Sheltered Bay, radiocarbon dating indicated occupation began between 5500 and 5000 BC. A complex of stone chambers associated with mixed material culture combined elements of both Arabian Neolithic and Ubaid. The first find was a 15 cm long model of a boat that was found against the wall of one chamber. It was modeled to give a detailed 3D depiction of a reed boat. Key features included parallel lines and modeling that represented the shape of reed bundles, as well as a coarse red ware associated with the central gulf. The second find was an image of a masted boat on a ceramic disc. The disc is approximately 7 cm in diameter. It was reworked from a shard of a painted ubaid bowl that bore a pattern of spokes which radiated out towards the scalloped border. Two spokes remained that resembled a two-footed mast, whilst the outer edge of the painted border was deliberately abraded to leave a crescent shape resembling a hull. 
this provided the earliest known evidence for the use of a, a mast and a sail. The third and final find were actual boat remains in the form of pieces of bitumen. This waterproof coating was used to cover the hull of the reed boat and represent the earliest boat remains in the Near East and the oldest known sea-going boat yet identified in history. The best preserved bitumen pieces measured 5 to 8 centimeters across and 1 to 3 centimeters thick. They were geometric, having straight edges joined to make an even polygon, uh, polygons with four or five sides. This reflected the underlying structure of the hull. A mesh of string or ropes were tied or sewn around the bundles or lashing held bundles together to create such a pattern. The bitumen coating was fractured along the lines of the cords. A fragment of a string impression can be seen along the edge of one of the bitumen pieces. The distribution of these bitumen pieces suggested it was removed from boats and stored for reuse. It may have been recovered from boats for recycling and reapplication, either for repairs or for the construction of a new boat. H3 is one of over 60 Arabian sites that display evidence for contact with Mesopotamia during the 6th and the 5th millennium BC. Almost all of these sites have Ubaid pottery. There are three strands of evidence that the pottery was sought by the inhabitants of the Gulf and that it was incorporated into their social strata. Although the distribution was mainly coastal, significant quantities of pottery traveled inland into the central Gulf region, some located as far as 60 to 70 kilometers away from the sea. Pottery was distributed throughout the local settlement pattern that reflected the dynamics of the local Neolithic economy and society, strongly implying that the pottery was circulated and was used locally. Imitations of Ubaid pottery were made in areas of limited circulation, implying that it was indeed a desirable commodity. It carried connotations of wealth and status, being regarded as an exotic good. Different to southern Mesopotamia, where no exotic goods were found at Ubaid sites. It was not until the end of the Ubaid period in 4000 BC that trade began to break down. Southern influence began to wane in northern Mesopotamia, with local cultures developing large centers with monumental architecture arising in the region. Contact and trade would develop again in the mid-4th millennium BC with the Uruk period, which I hope we will one day cover on this podcast. But now, let's talk about China and the Hongshan culture, 4700 to 2900 BC. The Hongshan was a Neolithic culture in northeastern China dated to between 4700 and 2900 BC, named after the site of Hongshan Hu in Hongshan district in Shaifeng. Uh, that was discovered by Japanese archaeologist Tori Ryoso in 1908 and excavated by Kosako Hamada and Mizuno Siichi in 1935. The Hongshan culture, culture interacted with the larger Jiangshao culture of the southwest. Burial artifacts included some of the earliest known examples of jade working. One striking example found at Changjingtala in 1971 is a 26-centimeter-high blackish-green jade dragon. The association of this jade dragon suggests that Inner Mongolia was one 
of the essential sites to trace the worship of the dragon by Chinese people. And on the Fan of History YouTube channel, I have actually recorded these texts with a slideshow as well. So if you look on the YouTube channel for Timeline of World History, you'll find these 12 shows with uh, pictures as well, if that is what you want. In the 1980s, excavators discovered an underground temple complex one meter deep in Nuhiliang in Liaoning province. The temple known as the Goddess Temple after the discovery of a clay female head with jade inlaid eyes was constructed of stone platforms with mural painted walls. Clay figurines three times the size of real life human beings were worshipped as deities for a religion not reflective in any other Chinese culture. Red pottery decorated with black or purple stripes arranged in parallel lines, triangles, scale-shaped patterns and C-shaped stripes were suggestive that religious sacrifice may have been performed. No sites devoted to sacrificial, rite, sacrificial rites have been found at the preceding Xinglongva and Shubagu sites. Outside the complex, cairns were discovered on top of two nearby hills with round or square-stepped tombs made of piled limestone containing sculptures of dragons and tortoises. Hence, the dragon worship again. Over 60 tombs constructed of stone covered by stone mounds frequently included jade artifacts. Some Chinese archaeologists see the Hongshan culture as an important stage of early Chinese civilization. It is credited with remarkable achievements in architecture, pottery making, jade carving and pottery sculpture at higher levels than preceding Neolithic cultures. The intriguing scenario is that it was the Hongshan that laid the foundation for the development of Chinese civilization as pottery and stone artifacts have been found 300 kilometers away at the site of Hunshandek in Inner Mongolia, showing that the region housed large population of Hongshan people. Therefore, the culture was far more wide-ranging than previously thought. People would then have moved south towards the, uh, the Yellow River once the climate deteriorated, come into contact with either Yangshao or the later Longshan culture. Could these people be the forerunners of the semi-legendary Chia dynasty? That's a good question. Had we made one more episode, we would have looked at the first two Neolithic cultures of ancient Egypt. We would return to Europe to look at the final Neolithic Greece phase, look at the Varna culture and the Funnel Beacle culture, and we look at one of the most famous Neolithic stone alignments in continental Europe, Karnak in France. But right now, we don't have a script for that. So we will instead go to the 690s BC for our next episode. Uh, Shane Sorby has written this script. Uh, thank you very much, Shane. If you want to comment Shane on this script, you can catch him on Twitter. He is uh, Sarak with a set. 002. You can also reach him on his YouTube channel, same name, set A-R-A-K-002, where O is a number, the number zero. It's dedicated to gaming. But for now, we end this flashback looking for 200,000 and we'll go back briefly to our main narrative. 
And then I don't know really what I will do with this channel. As I said before, I will probably uh, run stuff from my mass murder true crime show and try to translate that into English so you will get a lot of historical mass murders, such as perhaps the Stockholm bloodbath. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.